All right, so we have a brand new episode ready to go of the podcast, a conversation with Graham Parker, uh, but it's going to have to wait a week because I just found out that Cackle Coughlin has died, and he was on the show about a year and a half ago, and it was just one of those conversations that was perfect. He, I don't know if you know him, you should, um, <laughs> you should, I sound like I'm like uh, coming down on you for not knowing about Cackle Coughlin, but he is by far, uh, in my estimation, one of the most important songwriters of the last 50 years, if not ever. With Micro Disney, I mean, that career alone uh, is just something to behold. And his work with the Fatima Mansions, I mean, I could go on. This guy was busy, prolific, and it just kept getting better, which is ridiculous because everything he did was so remarkable. He just kept upping the stakes. He was that kind of guy. Every iteration was just it was just impossibly great. He was a just an incredible person to talk to. I, I I got on the phone with him. It was late on a Friday night. It was early in Ireland. And we were on Zoom, of course. But it, it literally felt like we had had this conversation before. And we would again. And we were just continuing something we'd already started a while ago. He was that familiar to me. Maybe it's because I've listened to him since I was 15 years old. Maybe it's because uh, he was just an awesome guy and easy to talk to. Or maybe it was something deeper and more cosmic. I don't know. Maybe it was all of them. But he was just so lovely and smart. And throughout our conversation, he demonstrated vulnerability, sophistication, humor, and grace. You know, we were sitting there talking, and it went on. We talked for about two hours, and I just loved it. And I said, you got to come back on. He said, I will. So in lieu of another conversation with Cackle, because it can't happen, we're going to replay this episode. I think it's worth another listen or two. Uh, it's such a cool conversation. And aside from the splendor of his body of work, what I admire most about him is his integrity. He's a artist who didn't do anything he didn't want to do. And his discography, dig into it, and you'll see there was no one else like him. So here you go. My chat with Cackle Cochlin. And like I said, it's one of my favorite conversations I've ever had. And I'm so grateful uh, to have had the chance to talk to him. Here's me and the late, great Cackle Cochlin right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. There's always a sense that you've kind of, that you're perhaps failing to take account of something really massive, such as not being able to play live. Yeah. And, and that is something that I definitely would have been doing. And I, I, I don't think that I would have been necessarily finishing off two albums at the speed I did, uh, or not at the speed, with the intensity that, that I did. Um, no, I mean, I definitely don't regard that as effort wasted. 
but um, the there's a kind of a deferral of the question, well, what's it all in aid of exactly, you know, other than it's good to make work, you know, uh, where is this meant to be leading? Oh, well, well, we'll think of that, you know, we'll think of that in due course. Yeah. Um, so in a way, I suppose we're as bad as the politicians. Um, uh, but what can you do? I mean, not alone the, 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 the pandemic, but the toxic politics of the entire English speaking world. Um, it just gets, it's, it's too much to take on, you know, I mean, I don't know if you heard, but the latest thing in Britain though, is that musicians are likely to need all manner of crazy documentation to go and play on the European continent, which is pretty much back the way it was in the 1980s, if not actually worse because of the procedures that were there then were at least kind of known about and, you know, I won't say road tested because they didn't work very well, but, you know, it, people knew what they were up against approximately, but now, you know, we don't really know what, what we're going to be facing. And, um, it's it's a it's a significant battleground in the culture war. It's not as important as students not being able to go and study uh, on the continent, but nevertheless, it um, it's another big question mark in the life of anybody who's trying to trying to make music. Yeah, I mean, like I imagine that for artists, it's a massive crisis of right. Like if you're beginning a career, if you're mid career, if you're um, if you're Neil Young, I think it hits everybody in a, you know, it's equalizing, I think, in its, in its magnitude. Yeah, and I mean, the fact that it's a, an equalizer of sorts, what, what I worry about is that people won't, musicians won't behave as if they're on the same side once the, whenever, however, things start coming back to normal or just unlocking, you know, once Live Nation starts doing stuff again, yeah, uh, you know the, yeah. the people inside the Live Nation drawbridge will have one reality, and the rest of us will have something else. I think. Um, obviously, some people inside will be more responsible and altruistic than others, you know. But you can't help thinking of people like Roger Daltrey and the stuff that he's, you know, Van Morrison. <laughs> <laughs> these kinds of people, their, yeah. their view on, you know, the pandemic or the politics, lovely. Um, yeah, Clapton too, I think. Oh yes, well, the enigma that remains Clapton and his periodic forays into the world of real life. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, right, right. I mean, the Van Morrison thing really, really, I mean, it all surprises me because um, I just assume that everyone is like-minded. Um, but uh, the Van Morrison and Clapton, I didn't know the Roger Daltrey thing. I, that's news to me. I didn't know he was, he shared that. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. He, in, in his inimitable kind of quite threatening style, he, he basically said, and it was about Brexit, he said, well, what do people think? We, you know, we, we toured Europe, you know, when, when Britain wasn't in the common market. Uh, yeah, you, you know, you're probably already about five years into your career and you had crew taking care of this stuff. And, you know, you're probably at worst in a bus traveling from 
venue to hotel to to venue, you know. Whereas, you know, I remember with Micro Disney going around in a van that had been hired from Sheffield, we were sort of going through, you know, West Germany, East Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia, down to Rome. <laughs> and, you know, al along that way, you would experience much that was, you know, deeply unpalatable. In fact, I have to say, you know, I have no nostalgia for the Iron Curtain or the regimes that lay behind it, but those some of those frontiers you would be you would be quite scared but as as long as they didn't decide they were going to just take the van to pieces to look for radio transmitters or pamphlets um you would kind of just go through where some of the the more some of the frontiers in the more supposedly democratic countries um it was just arbitrary procedures and you know, you'd better have some well-known band's merch on you so you could hand it over and smooth away, or you could be there all night, you know, this this kind of thing, you know. So um, human nature is what it is. I mean, I'm not using it as a way of condemning the European Union. But anyway, to get, I mean, to get back to Roger, you know, um, absolutely zero self-awareness whatsoever. Yeah. You know? What about when you came to the U.S.? Was it, was it, tricky even getting in here in the 80s because you guys played here I'm, I'm in i'm in the bay area san francisco um i don't know if you i was a, maybe a little too young when micro disney was touring i'm not sure i feel like i feel like you guys played here uh no micro disney never got to america at all hmm. um with the mansions there were several tours and we do we did play san francisco a couple of times once in a place called the DNA Club. Oh, the DNA Lounge. DNA Lounge, yeah, yeah. yeah. And second time, I think it would have been a university, but not one of the cool ones. Because <laughs> um, we were not headlining and yeah, yeah, that, that, that was not a happy tour. Um, so yes, um, I've been to San Francisco a number of times, and uh, yeah, it is a, a place of legend. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of a lot of um, bands from overseas were making their way over here. I wasn't really hip to how complicated that was. Oh, it was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I read about it in Marky Smith's book. He talked about what a pain in the ass it was to to get here. Um, and so you're saying there's a return, there's going to be, it looks like a return to that kind of procedural annoyance. Well, I, I think the relationship with America will just be what it's been. You know, I, I don't think there'll be any loosening up and it has just got stepwise worse over the years. I mean, the last I heard, it was quite common for acts from this side of the world to just be denied uh, page one B one visas or whatever it, is you need these days and just on the basis of you're not doing anything an American can't do um, and it kind of doesn't matter how much budget you have because the thing about the old days uh, which I do not look back on with nostalgia was that you had to be able to really assemble a case 
Um, and really what you needed was an attorney on the, on the US side, um, as well as going to the embassy, queuing at 5 a.m., wow. queuing all day, potentially answering quite intrusive questions and that kind of thing. Have your press clippings with you, you know, demonstrate that you are a unique, that you have some unique character. Um, but I mean, you, well, you would need, you would also need a carnet. I mean, it was, yeah, it was, it was costly then. It's costly now, but it's more precarious now, as I understand it. Do you have interest in? I mean, it's hard to imagine, but would you have interest in extensively touring in that way that you did? Or is that just not really something you that you have the sort of the bandwidth for to, to do? Um, I don't think I would have the bandwidth for doing it extensively, no. I mean, sooner or later in the, in the it seems to me, and I, I mean, my slant is colored by just the experiences I've had and heard about. I think unless you, unless you start making major inroads in America and you, and you just remain touring at the kind of Econoline van sort of level, yeah, there is a, there comes a moment where you're skidding on the ice on a freeway at three thirty a.m. in South Dakota or something, and you don't know whether you're going to live or die, <laughs> yeah, and. The distances you have to cover between shows can be, as you know, just really crazy. And um, the people who are driving may not be able to get enough sleep it's through no kind of lifestyle choices whatsoever, just to try to make the gigs. And that scares me, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I, w I certainly would like to be able to come and play key places again, if it were possible, but we'll just have to see. You know? Yeah. But it is dangerous. And I, I also imagine the mortality rate of bands probably has something to do with the idea of being sick of being in an Econoline van with the same people, even though you probably adore them, it kind of doesn't matter. Well, for a time it comes to not matter. Yeah. And that's that's the 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 tunnel of touring that like everybody seemingly has to go through. And yeah. You know, it's it's a bit like being on drugs or something with, with, without necessarily taking drugs, you have to remind yourself that what you're feeling is an artifact of the situation you're in. You don't really hate that person. You don't really hate, you know, whatever argument you just had was just the result of the, the, thing, you, the thing you're going through. It takes immense fortitude, I think. And I think, you know, realistically, I think only a small small percentage of musicians actually genuinely get through it. Yeah. You know, the, the number of people, successful people you hear of where they appear to be the best of friends, but reality may be something, something other. Yeah. You know, well, look, the no, separate, the separate bosses and all this sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, look no further than that Eagles documentary where Glenn Fry and Don, <laughs> Don Henley took separate planes or separate, they were not planes, but maybe they were in separate, separate, uh, buses they couldn't even be near each other yeah yeah right um also i think I, I heard today that sort of that domestic partnerships i mean family units and like the divorce rate right now in america is steadily climbing because people are getting sick of being in the same space with each other and going because it's kind of unnatural to be like this is just so much time um 
my opinion, I would think, well, it's kind of cool that you get a chance to spend time with someone you wouldn't normally get to spend that much time with. But I guess there is a kind of press where there's not enough personal space, I guess, people are finding. Well, I think the, the critical thing for me is just not bringing back any, exper any experiences to the household. <laughs> right, uh, the, right. The, the sim just the simple thing that, you know, guess what happened to me today? That's not a conversation you can have. <laughs> no. No, it's like, let me guess, the same thing that happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, there's only so much stuff off the internet or a documentary or something that can, you know, make a micro kind of comp mitigation of that. What is your relationship like to the past? Like when you, I know we're talking a little bit about, about the old days, but when you think about just your life in general, are you one of those people that tends to not live in the past and you're always forging something new? Or do you tend to revisit uh, or at least visit those places that you've been in, in your, I guess I'm asking, are, are you sentimental in that, in that regard? I think I'm not not terribly sentimental uh, I, yeah it, I mean the, 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 your question is something that I I, I, I I give a lot of thought to as I go along um, I think not having a how do I put this without sounding sneery I mean not having a, a kind of a platinum um, track record reduces the kind of circumstantial triggers uh, that you might have to revisit the past so that you can, you can have a new creative slant on it every two or three years or whatever it happens to be. It, it, it just doesn't happen to me. And um, it is all about making new work and what, what did I do last, 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 you know? Right. Um, and which isn't to say that there aren't conundrums of the past that that come into my to my head. You know, for example, the way things are now with these this all this new music coming out in the first half of this year, and you know there there simply is just a lot to be done to get it heard. Um, I worry that I will repeat some problems I've had in the past where I focused on that and not on making new stuff and I've opp new opportunities have come in and I've had to kind of rev up from from nothing yeah in, in order to meet them and that hasn't you know hand on heart hasn't always gone well for me so um those are the kinds of things um I what I tend not to do because I, I just don't see the the rationality in it is think, oh, what if, you know, what if that thing had sold better and life had gotten easier? It Well, it just didn't, you know, and yeah. um, well, especially once you, you know, once you get past a certain age, your personal life clamors for your attention and can become the main and maybe the only thing for long stretches and and that's the imprint that remains really rather than what you were doing before that when 
when you were able to be away for six weeks or six months or whatever and you know put all your stuff in storage or you know not really have another life um uh that just seems those periods seem like other other lives um the songs of course do come back because you have to think whether you can play them again and and in what form and uh that's sort of constructive, but you know, when we did the Micro Disney reunion shows in 2017, 18, sorry, 18, 19, it was, <laughs> um, um, it was the occasion of revisiting lots of material. Yeah. And uh, it, it just seemed like stuff that was written by other people. And I mean, I think <laughs> it was the same for Sean as, as for me. I mean, the way, the way we've, done things since since back then for both of us has changed so radically for Sean possibly even more than for me I mean he would have his own view on that but um, there were things I mean for example we um, uh, we were asked to do a little video piece for the Barbican Centre which was where we did the London show and the Barbican Centre is this big um, arts and residential centre. It's really the only thing of its kind that London has. Um, I mean, it's even more residential than it is arts, actually. It's a classic brutalist style estate, kind of right. Uh, it's on the edge of the financial district, kind of as you go into the really ancient historical part. Um, near places like Clerkenwell, you know, what kind of links back to John Dee and all the kind of, the kind of arcane history of London. But it, it, it isn't really like that, but it is this kind of labyrinthine brutalist um, estate. And we were asked to do uh, some sort of promotional music, music piece, you know, to video. So we decided we would do um, Dolly, which was a, one of our early micro Disney songs, yeah. just the just the two of us, and uh, and they they filmed us in this strange little tunnel of this abandoned con conference center that they have there, and um, and we did it, and I mean it, it turned out pretty good, but uh, we never even really broached the subject of actually playing that in the gigs because it was just too weird really intricate um like what were we thinking um thing uh, especially on the on the guitar side uh, but it was it's it was complex with the car i was because i was playing kind of warlets or piano and yeah so um yeah we we, we had to establish what the kind of mainstream of what we were going to do was and it certainly wasn't that it was the, the clock comes down the stairs album, mostly. I mean, like the, the the first two shows were just about that album with some other stuff uh, thrown in, and then in twenty nineteen we did a show that was a bit more, a bit more of a cross section, but it was it was purely a kind of a pleasant canter through um, something 
scripted. You know, it, it, it was not devoid of emotion um, in, 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 the, in the performance, but it was like the times when I've been playing in other people's shows, like I've done quite a lot of music theater stuff in France, for example, with this company that I've done like four productions with. Um, it was a bit like playing their material, actually. Um, it was, and, and, and so much the more pleasant for it, actually, because you didn't have to kind of, there was no kind of, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm not really sure about the way that, you know, those notes on the, on the guitar harmonize with the bass there, you know, should we just tear that down and spend three weeks dicking around with it, you know, yeah. no, <laughs> there was no question of any of that, which was really liberating, you know. It's, it's weird. I'm a writer and I, if I go back and look at my old stuff, it feels like a tour of primitive. It feels primitive to me, right? It doesn't feel fully formed. It doesn't feel, um, it's stuff I would never want anyone to see. Your stuff is, your early stuff is really fully formed. There's nothing primitive about it. It's quite rich. Um, so, so that's not the issue. So is it just the fact that it was just so long ago and you're, and you're a different person? Is it just as simple as that? Um, I think it's the, the kind of re, the, the reevaluations of how to make music that have happened in the, in, in, for, for me in, in the meantime, because after Micro Disney, I began at least attempting to write material that um, could stand to have a pretty good beating administered to it by whatever circumstances you had to play it in and at least trying not to make it too specific to the particular instruments and um, logistics that you had. Um, so, uh, I mean, that's been a, a battle ever since. And I did have to kind of, the one bit of old stuff I did have to look at recently was uh, the last album that I made, Rancho Tetrahedron in 2009. Um, I um, had to dig it out and just digitize it because it wasn't present on a number of uh, distribution channels and stuff and I'd let the I'd let kind of moss grow over the whole thing so I had to actually listen to it a, a good few times and um, I, I, it was a place where I completely failed to write something that could be ported if you like to to different ways of um, of playing it to the extent that when we went out and did a few shows, it was, there wasn't really a tour, but we played a few shows and uh, we didn't really play very much of it. And a lot of what was played was me solo because I just couldn't face trying to figure out uh, in the limited rehearsal time we had um, how to do it. I mean, sometimes having people who were like, really technically accomplished can mean that you don't want to dilly-dally. Um, you don't want to try people's patience. And it was a case of that, you know? So, I mean, whereas with the Micro Disney stuff, there was never any question. With 95% oh, of the material got played live extensively. 
no matter how intricate or fiddly it was to do um, in terms of the notes that were being played, the, the, the technology was very straightforward. So it didn't matter whether it was in an L-shaped room with two PA systems in Poland at three o'clock in the afternoon or a, a more successful show in London, you know, four years later um, with, uh, with a conventional PA system. It was all one approach. So, I, you know, that is the, I guess what I'm saying is that that is the thing that remains a riddle to me, you know. Uh-huh. I'm still trying to, trying to crack it, but I think most of the stuff on my new album has already been taken apart and put together many times um, in its finished form. We, with the Grand Necropolitan group, uh, I played a f good few of the songs in live in 2019. Because the plan was to sort of go from just playing stuff live to deciding, well, we're going to do a four-track EP now. Let's just do that um, and see what happens. And then maybe do another one and just do a bunch of recording and sort of at the end of it, maybe do a, a like a vinyl compilation of the, the most cohesive cross-section. Well my personal circumstances changed and then the pandemic happened and it, so the compilation work really had to be done in, in in the mind and it just turned into an album yeah uh, uh it seemed like the the practical thing to do but it, it was certainly not taylor swift getting together with uh you know done done super fast broadband with platinum because you know collaborators to do something from scratch right well you've i mean do you feel you're getting closer to cracking that riddle that you were talking about or do you feel that it's still as elusive as ever not quite as elusive in terms of the, the readiness of, of the material because I, I i think i have even by the time i get to a demo that i'm happy with um most of these things have been have have sounded very different at least once if not more so that's good um the part that's hard is just knowing what it takes to play live to as many different audiences as you can i'm lucky enough to have a pool of people that i like working with yeah but the logistics of getting them all from a to b um are rough um people increasingly don't live in london for example so getting everyone together to rehearse is one thing and then just the expense of getting around so how flexible can you be and you know some instruments are need one another to, 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 to be there, you know? You can't sort of say, well, we're gonna do three shows, you know, with, without that instrument and, it's, and then we're gonna all get back together again for this one. I mean, it isn't necessarily workable that way. And that's what I'm trying to kind of run in my head at the moment for whatever reality it is that we're gonna have to face. 
Oh, I, do, I don't know, in the second half of this year or when, whenever it is, you know, the initial, the initial loosening and then whatever the reality is after that. I mean, who, you know, what do we know? I mean, I, th I think I've got to be prepared to do things on my own initially. I don't know. I don't know. I, I have done it before and it's been, it's been okay. It's nerve, nerve jangling for me, but I can usually manage to relax. And I think maybe it is something I need to get, get more comfortable with for those outlying, outlying things, you know, where they are worth doing, but they're not feasible to do with everyone, you know? Yeah. It nerve jangling because of the vulnerability of being so stripped back. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it, you know, not being Neil Young and for example, and having come up through playing coffee houses and, you know, the riverboat was rocking in the rain and so forth. <laughs> um, I came up through, you know, four or five people playing frantic noise, you know, um, and that was my introduction. That was my kind of guide rope. Um, so it's really, it can feel really super fragile. And the worry is, you know, is this stretching people's patience, this level of fragility of rhythm and, you know, all kinds of basic stuff. Um, but it worked for me before. So yeah. why wouldn't it, why wouldn't it work again? A little bit anyway. My, my, I would like to have as many people on stage as possible, frankly. I'd like to be George Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've, I've watched with the mansions, I've seen enough live footage where you, you're so self-possessed, you, but you have this foundation around you, right, is what you're saying. And yeah. so that sort of architecture and that, that sort of battalion of musicians, and if it's just you, um, it's amazing because my first thought wouldn't be that it would test people's patience. I would think people would actually be really um, sort of attracted to the vulnerability or the fragility of that stripped back performance. Um, the ones I've done have gone well, you know, well, it's, it's, a, it's just a different atmosphere and the things from the audience that you feed off are, are just different. Um, yeah. Um, and you can just through not being accustomed to it, there can be these moments where you're not sure whether they're buying it or not, you know, the <laughs> yeah. most basic kind of feedback stuff um so um yeah but i mean i can't say i've ever had a a toe curling moment um when doing those kinds of things but um it's about a different me you know i'm not I pr i'm probably not as self-possessed and i am kind of watching the the musical structure um but definitely worth doing you know yeah because that because that that is a character that becomes you become a character when you have that you do right you, yeah. you really do and when you don't have that sort of 
that sort of framework we're talking about where if it's just you, it's just that you're playing a totally different character. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, a quieter, maybe a quieter version of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Although where it's not quieter, um, you have to kind of rein yourself in slightly so that you don't just like fall off the end because if you're pounding the piano or something, um, well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it's just a mindset thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Is it hard to get out of your head in that way? Is that the main challenge? Is it sort of like, just let go and just maybe just, maybe just enjoy it. <laughs> just not be so right in your space, in that space. Well, the worry is you'll forget what's, what's happening next. Yeah. Yeah. You have to remember what's happening next. Cause yeah. if you, if, if you screw up, like, you know, there just is no, there is no safety net whatsoever. Um, and, you know, you can, you can kind of go with that, I suppose, you know, just, yeah. But it's, it's just all about having those hours of doing it under, under your belt. Uh, but in 2019, I mean, we did, one of the shows in Ireland was, just just a duo with me and James Woodrow on guitar, and that, that 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 worked well. And it was possible to visit material that, you know, we the band show we did a band show one night and that the second night, and we were able to have a completely different repertoire, you know, which was great. I mean, there's a the the, the great thing about having been around for so long is that you do have a lot of choices. Yeah, um, it's it's it can really. F buy you up that the, the realization that you know there just is all this material it's just you've got, just got to do the work and that's all you know um the, you don't have to kind of dream it up and sometimes playing that stuff inspires you to to write things like quickly to kind of um follow that direction that you've um you've established by by re redoing that stuff but you know <laughs> It's very much a product of playing, of being able to actually play live. Yeah, yeah, you're more right. You, your chops become more well-oiled, I think. Yeah. You know. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's interesting. I mean, the I talked to Peter from the apartments, and he told me that he is he's more prolific now. He's recording faster than he ever was. Um, I'm curious if if you feel that you can produce more now, but more importantly, I'm also more curious about, do you feel that you can apprehend the artistic vision that you have in your brain? Do you think that because you've done this for so long, it's easier for you to execute that vision and then taking it one step further with what Peter's doing and are you able to sort of get that recorded quicker than you, than you used to? In the good times, yes, um, undoubtedly quicker. Um, but it, it, it comes and goes for me. I mean, I, I never achieved that level of kind of automatic writing, you know, um, you know, that, uh, I just read Jeff Tweedy's book about, um, about how to write one song. I don't know yeah. If you've, Great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I envy that because uh, it doesn't really work for me. You know, I, um, I, 
It's all about momentum for me. And sometimes um, I'm just in a state of mind where it's just going to take as long as it takes. And having the fortitude to put the damn thing aside and just leave it until it simplifies itself um, can be a struggle for me to, um, to just make myself do. Um, but I would, yeah, I mean, I am going to try some of Jeff's processes actually, because it might unlock something. But I think um, if life can only simplify itself, if you're not having to squeeze things in too odd hours here and there where you're not just paying the rent, um, it does make a big difference. It can feel like a load's been lifted. I was lucky to have a year in 2019 where, where that happened for me for a while. And I did get an awful lot of material completed and, and initiated and finished um, in three months, you know, which wow. is ve very good going for me. There was a lot more than what's on this album. So I'm lucky to have good stuff from there that should form the, the backbone of something else. And um, then... Um, Last year, I um, reconnected with an old friend from Ireland who has had a very successful career as a producer and musician. And we, um, we worked on a collaboration project remotely. He lives in California, funnily enough. Wow. Uh, and uh, we, we, we made an album in the space of, I guess it was about three months. So, you know, it goes to show. Um, uh, I mean, the, but a, a good thing about a collaboration is that you're not fussing over every single aspect. You're kind of just uh, passing on the bat on it, you know, periodically and yeah, getting something back and, and, and completing. So that got done pretty quickly as well. Um, but compared to some friends of mine, um, like my friend Luke Haynes, for example, um, he can literally set to writing and recording an album and it, it just gets done, I think a lot quicker than three months. Um, but he has the facility that I don't particularly have to fasten onto a concept, what this project is about and execute it you know i i get waylaid i get waylaid by um lyrical or kind of you know emotional preoccupations that i that i want to do something with and i get waylaid by the by music i've heard while i'm while i'm working on the thing and uh, yeah it just becomes a bit winding so maybe the best thing for me is, is that things do have to happen very quickly because that means that fewer fewer other of those kinds of things, especially music I've heard, gets to intrude. You know, there have been projects such as the final Fatima Mansions album, for example, where I was such a geek for things I've been listening to that I drove the producer to distraction because I was always just saying, can we introduce a bit of this? 
and uh, yeah, he well, it was Jerry Harrison from Talking Heads and all, who I have immense respect for. Yeah, which which has only enhanced been enhanced by the years. You know, hearing hearing Remain in Light or something now still is just a you know a real head scratching experience of of really high quality. Um, but he had a, a, more, a way more focused um, outlook on things than I had. And, you know, you know, some little synth squeak here where I wanted to, you know, if we put a bit more delay on that, you know, or that kind of thing. I'm not like that anymore. And I, I wasn't like that for very long, actually, to be honest, because it was those songs had been sort of worked up by me on my own too much. And uh, there's a lot of impracticality, uh, but it, it it does show the kind of the evil that I'm capable of, you know, when yeah. left to my own my own devices for too long. Send my appeal without delay from this place of thumps and cries. My hands are slick and my breath is thick And I can't reach to rise My balance gone, my skull upon It's casing warped and cracked In this decade which I refuse to name in this glass house beside the tracks Fields of home, warm light of love These things I can recall I was theirs and they were mine Until black Came at 2 a.m. Their manes flayed the window pane, and they bore me off to a muddy plain where the villages were in flames. And we rode all night, for they would not turn, though I begged. And cursed and wet They delivered me on to some angry men Who punched me until I slept Children called me father once Flesh and blood and small must have roused their hate or blame to earn Black River Falls.
say the spring has come at last. They say, wake up and see. I'm ready to quit Black River Falls, but it just won't quit me. It just won't quit me. radio or elsewhere and you thought oh i wonder if those elements can be incorporated right in other words yeah. you you had your you had your ear open you were hearing things that you liked but there's no end to that is kind of what you're saying right like wh- how, where does that stop you, there's always stuff that you'll hear there can be yeah 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 um the things of mine that have, well, I mean, in the case of that album, Last in the Former West, I wanted to do something that was built on what the mansions was like as a live act, which is this kind of monolithic sort of like engine. And some other things that were coming out of digital technology, like the Young Gods, for example, were really like um, that sort of took hard rock and turned it into this kind of abstract abstract art yeah um and and then you had some of the kind of some of the more interesting ravey stuff and it's some of the industrial stuff and um and dub you know uh so i wanted to roll all that into one i literally wanted to roll all, all that into one and i was maybe too literal about it you know and when you're full of references, references can only get you so far, really, because they don't mean much to everybody uh, that you're going to come into contact with. And uh, yeah, it was it, it was a case of that. But the things of mine, the solo stuff of mine that's worked best uh, has been where I've, I've given myself a brief on the arrangements, you know, Either these are the people who are going to play on it, or these are the instruments that people are going to be playing. Yeah. Keep it to a smaller set and just do that. But from when I did Black River Falls around 1999, 2000, um, where there was still a lot of other color coming in, uh, not a vast amount of it, but that record could hold something that was um, basically you know, just based around finger-picked acoustic guitar, 
double bass, drums, piano. Um, I mean, it had strings and stuff on it as well, but we, we won't go there. Um, <laughs> it, it could be that, or it could be something like a song, a song called The Bacon Singer, which was quite electronic. It was sort of drum and bassy, but it was completely played live. Um, but it, it, because it didn't depart in critical ways from 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 the blueprint it could actually be done but then over the years um i got commissioned in 2005 to do um this live event in in cork where i come from because uh, it was the european capital of culture that year and i had to basically write something that could just be played completely live um which was a song cycle and had sort of in spoken interludes and things like this. So that was really literally about just piano, accordion, cello, guitar, bass, drums. So it was a, a somewhat larger group, but it was, it could not be, with that lineup, it could not be a confected thing. There were no electronic keyboards. Right. I mean, the, key, the keyboard player was Steve Beresford, a piano, piano player. Um, Steve is from the, the, London free music, free improvisation world. Very, very accomplished player of written music also, but, uh, you know, big, big figure. So I certainly wasn't going to give him some plastic synthesizer and say, you know, um, you know, Steve, at this moment, can you just turn around from the piano and just play something that sounds like a Mellotron? It just, you know, yeah. You don't get Steve on a project if that's what you're going to say, you know. So, um, so that was the way I did it, and that kind of got me. Uh, so, and, and it was it was quite successful, and we made a record of that was called Foberg afterwards. But when I listen to that record now, I kind of I, I keep waiting for the plastic Mellotron to come in, you know, because making records, this is the perversity. It's a bit like you were saying a moment ago about the stage persona. Making a record is also about a kind of confection. It, it is a confection and you kind of deny it at your peril. And if it is just one person and a, a guitar or a keyboard, whatever it happens to be, um, there is a confectedness about that. And I mean, I mean perhaps that is just, the, the, perhaps the confection is just the person's accomplishment on their instrument. Mm -hmm. You know, perhaps that's the confection. And I've, by, by, by confection, I don't mean something dishonest. Right. But, I, you know, but there is a thing, it isn't just a, a captured live performance. It isn't just that. It, you know, thought has been given. You know, to, to get back to the Neil Young thing for a minute. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he talks about when he recorded his version of Greensleeves, in the mid seventies, and it didn't it didn't come out until a few weeks back on on on, his, on, on that archive, right? Um, but what he had in mind, he had a studio in it on his ranch, you know, um, and uh, he would go in there when literally whenever inspiration took him, and he wanted to get this version of Greensleeves right, and he got in there one day. And he was doing it and the engineer cocked it up and the moment was just gone. And he felt he never, he didn't get it then, 
at that particular moment. So it wasn't on the album that he was making. And that was the end of that. Um, so, I mean, what he was doing then, it was just him and a guitar. He was just trying to confect. He was trying to capture, he was trying to capture a moment, he would say. But to me, that's, that is a type of confection. Right. Um, because you, you're trying to make the moment. Right. And I don't have, I don't have some quasi mythical, you know, mystical belief that a moment is a real thing. No, it's bullshit. It's just something you imagine happened. But it's, it is, you are trying to make something that is going to connect with a listener in a, in, in a particular way, you know. Um, so with the new record that I've, well, with, with Song of Coatlin album, um, I've completely taken that on board and sort of said, well, what is, what is my confection? And well, at this particular moment in time, my, my confection is to just throw in the kitchen sink when it's needed, really, and, um, and micro-tune every detail. I mean, I had to mix a lot of it myself, which wasn't what I thought was going to happen. Um, but when the pandemic came on, it just became essential to do it. Yeah. So, but really it went pretty good. And for the first time of me doing that kind of thing, I feel I was fixating on the right details rather than just the wrong ones time after time. Um, and uh, so it's the kind of record, maybe it's the kind of record I would have made and lost in the former West if I'd been holding all the levers and actually been able to operate them, you know, which yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't. Um, but I don't know whether that's, you know, the, the kind of, you know, the, it's just a record. It's not the real, the real anything, you know? Right. It, you know, it, it, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a recording if it was real. But this, this is where Lee Mavers lost his head right? Because because he realized it will never be the real anything. It'll always be, right? I think, I think that, I mean, I'm speaking for Lee Mavers, which I have no business doing, but from what I've read, it sounded like he, he couldn't figure out the connective tissue between the magic of the moment and the recording of the magic moment, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I mean he, he is a particular case in point, isn't he? I mean, the the endless tragedy and enigma of like nothing at all happening after the classic classic album um which he doesn't even like <laughs> no no to, i mean to, to him it was a total sell out compromise right. whatever um yeah it, it it goes to show that what matters is if you are someone who makes records, uh, it it is about what you what you actually leave behind. It isn't about your intention, and you, you of course you can compromise too much, and of course you can come up with something that just doesn't matter, yeah. um, but uh, or that sort of breaks your heart, you know, and means that you can't can't do it anymore. But um, there has to be real politic. Um, 
there has to be an acceptance that, well, maybe you struggling against that moment is the, is the, is the work, you know? Right. Maybe it, maybe it is you in that situation. And, it, you know, if you can just stay in the game, you know, even if that is you alone in, in your spare room with a bunch of boxes, or not even your spare room, in your kitchen with, with a, a bunch of boxes, or standing your couch on the end to try to make a vocal booth, or, you know, wh wh whatever, you know, maybe those struggles are, are the actual moment. Right. You know, that, that, that's, you know, something like Einstürz and Neuboten, you know, is a, an inspiration because uh, I know there was a lot of theory there. Yeah. And, and you know, indeed, there, there, there still is a lot of theory there. But at the same time, just taking a bunch of found objects and putting them into a space under a, under a, a motorway, like a, a motorway service hatch or whatever it was, saying, right, now we rehearse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, or no, we write. Um, you know, if you if you had been someone who go, you know, who who, who thought, well, I want to be, I, I want to be like, you know, the Beatles in nineteen sixty four. You know, this is heartbreaking to witness. Not everybody has that kind of adaptability, I guess you'd say, or, or the kind of cover story they can give themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact that the Beatles were able to just invent stuff, um, you know, with, through fusing things that have been there already, like, like, like anybody does. Um, but would they have done that if, if they'd been thinking, right, we want to be, we want to get the spirit of Lonnie Donegan, or we want to get the spirit of... Um, uh, Larry Young, or you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, it um, it just wouldn't have happened for them, you know. No, and I think that part of it is, you know, you have the extremes. That's so Lee Mabers, which is that you you basically have nothing from him, right, for the last thirty yeah. or so, because of, for whatever reason, and then you have that sort of really um, extreme confection of what we're talking about that's just been, you know, architected to death. Um, yeah. But maybe the, maybe the answer is to sort of, like you were asking, like, do you ever get it right? Maybe the, you have to sort of say, like, maybe you never really get it right, but you get close. And, you know, maybe an artist, the, the journey of an artist is to get as close as you can before it's all over, you know? I mean, maybe that's the, the simple way of thinking about it. Exactly. I mean... Going back to Lost in the Former West, I mean, on the on the occasions I've I've listened to it, I mean, you know, a few of the tracks were taken off to New York and mixed by Chris Lord Algae, and so it's quite a. <laughs> it ain't the young gods, <laughs> I tell you, but I, I listen to it and I think, well, yeah, this actually has, you know, it ha it ha has an ha has an identity. You know, it is a snapshot of where things were at then. Um, and I don't know that I would ever want to go there again, but at least I've got that, you know? Right. 
or right. at least uh, some of us have it because of course it isn't available but um that's that's more of a business uh, farrago of uh, of failures and malice um uh, but um yeah i mean sometimes good enough comes to seem like you know further down the road uh, can come to seem like an event and that's all you're asking for is an event you know i mean I, i've i've been digitizing dat tapes that i recorded in the 90s when i was having contractual difficulties and doing all manner of things to try and just like jog jog me into being able to continue as a musician and i, I for a long time i dismissed a lot of the stuff that I did, but I go back to it now and okay, well, I mean, you know, I wouldn't do it now, um, uh, but it was, it is lo-fi, it is kind of outsider-ish, it is kind of demented, um, <laughs> but I think I'm probably going to put it out um, eventually, I mean, not this year, but sometime, sometime in the near future, I think it's going to be called At Home in the 20th Century. <laughs> that's cool i think you should put it out and i think you know like for example um and i've said this before but when my my book of poems came out when i when i finished that book i said this is it this is perfect this is exactly what i wanted to do i did a reading a few months later and i was changing words as i was reading it but i was like yeah the mess right like how could i have possibly but at the time when I, when I, you know, punched the clock and said, this is it, this, stop the scoreboard, this is what I wanted to do. Um, six months later, I was a different person. You know, it gets back to that, what's that Morrissey line, like, has the world changed or have I changed, right? It's like, I must have changed because I no longer felt complete about the work that I'd felt complete about six months earlier, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I was literally changing so much of what I'd already written and I'd signed off on. Um, I'm sure you've experienced that. That's what we're talking about, right? So I think you have to sort of like go, okay, well, that's just, that's just going to happen because I'm not the same person today that I was when I wrote that stuff or recorded that stuff, which is okay. It is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the example you're describing sounds perfectly acceptable to me. And, but then you look at Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> now you've done it. Yeah. <laughs> um, just how distant do you have to feel? <laughs> I mean, admittedly, it's given him a whole lease of life on, on new material. Um, and there were lots of re you know, re retoolings of material along the way that were great. But singing, you know, blowing in the wind on two notes in three, four time, uh, you just think, why? I mean, why does this have to, you know, and you've got really inspired musicians who can sort of follow you and everything, but I'm sure if you gave them their hit, it could be really quite intense, you know. So, you know, there, there, I think there is a limit somewhere, but um, I don't rightly know where it should be. But what's happened to music, um, tends to preclude it. I mean, it can feel like monstrous vanity. You know, for example, if Michael Disney had gone out and played the clock was down the stairs in the style of 
the High Lamas or the Fatima Mansions or my solo stuff or whatever. You know, I think it would have been a pretty nasty thing to do to people. Right. Right. You know, in a in a passive aggressive kind of way, you know. It seemed to us at least that the only sane thing to do was to to treat it like classical music or something where this is the arrangement. But 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 I mean that was a huge long hugely long time down the road. I think six months or something like that. That's that's legit. Three years is legit. Um yeah. but you know, when it's thirty years, uh, you know, the they say that when the specials got back together again, when, when Jerry Dammers was supposedly going to um be part of it, um he wanted to do the old special stuff in the style of this space, spatial AKA orchestra. Oh. Um, you know, and I mean, I think it might've been great in a, in a, in a, in some way, but it would, it would have sort of lost the point of all those individuals that were the specials, you know, doing each doing their thing, you know, in a kind of a semi bubble. You know, but that right. was that was that was the band. You know, um, you know, Roddy Radiation sort of playing rockabilly guitar, and you know, um, Neville and Linville, you know, doing that, and Terry Hall is a sort of semi glam rocker who kind of walked <laughs> walked yeah. into this thing, Johnny Rotten glam rock thing. Anyway, um, that's that's a bit bit of a, a rabbit hole, but it, it's. Who knows where the line is, really? I think caring about the audience matters up to a certain a certain degree, but um, it, it goes back to what I was saying. I mean, if you don't have this enormous reputation, or if there, if the work you're doing, do, you know, doesn't have this, I won't say legendary status because that doesn't apply to anything I've done. But it, it but if if um, if you don't feel you've led people up the garden path to expect a certain thing, then obviously it's perfectly sensible to temper. Um, especially if logistics demand it. <laughs> yeah, right. But, but I think, I mean, I've always found, I talk about this a lot, but like when a famous author, I've used the Orwell example where it's at the 50th anniversary of 1984 and he's like, here's the lost chapter. And it's like, I don't think that was a lost chapter. I think you wrote that last week because you, you're a different person now. And I think that the, I talk about this it, to myself all the time where I sort of think about it. And I think like the plight of the artist is you're sort of like Sisyphus, right? Like you, you, you never yeah. boulder up the hill. And I think you have to sort of be okay with that reality, you know? I mean, yeah, I think, um, as long as there are like new bits of sand attaching themselves to the boulder, uh, you know, yeah. that's, that's the main thing really. And uh, th th there's more than one way to skin that cat or well, to mix metaphors hopelessly. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it can be a rearrange or it can be a reevaluation or it can just be none of the same material. Um, the main thing is to keep moving. Have you always been very critical of your of yourself when you're when you're in in the creative process? Do you um, I don't want to say are you hard on yourself, but do you hold yourself to a standard where you are 
um, where it can almost get in the way sometimes of the process itself. Um, yes, I think uh, maybe on more of a subconscious level though, because um, you know, everybody has bad days. Everybody has, has days where the things they're doing just sound or read or look bad to them. Um, and they feel like they can't get out of that hole. Uh, I think having, having a certain amount of arrogance to think, well, obviously everything I do is terrific. <laughs> um, must be quite valuable. I think to, <laughs> to, to pull oneself out of there. Um, whatever the ultimate outcome is, I don't really have that. I feel like every day I kind of, every day I sit down to do something is the first day of me being a musician, songwriter, whatever. And I, I have to prove myself to myself and I, I can't necessarily guarantee that anything that sounds good to me is going to be accepted by other people. So, um, those are the realities. Uh, I try not to bring too much of my personal baggage to it, but inevitably you do, you know, any, it shows up. Yeah. Any sense of your own inadequacies gets, gets magnified in certain ways. Um, but I think there is a particular kind of alpha person, isn't there? You know, the, the sting, sting, <laughs> yep. who is able to just have this kind of, um, the sunny side up, you know, that says, well, obviously, I mean, obviously if I'm doing it, right. Dot, dot, dot. I'm not knocking it, you know, cause, yeah. um, we all need something to get us through. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but there is something about that. There's like a, I don't know. I mean, I, I imagine I've always equated being really prolific in your youth as having something to do with, um, I, I don't know what that is, but, but I feel like when you get older, you are more discriminating. Um, whereas when you were, when you were like, when I was, when I was, 23 my poems were like 15 pages and now there's six lines you know it's like yeah yeah there's something has changed where i won't allow things on the canvas that i would have allowed before i'm i'm much more discriminating i think which has helped the process but also slowed the process because i know i kind of know what's bullshit i know when i'm trying to kid myself um and yeah, I, won't, yeah. I won't allow myself to do that anymore and i think that's something that is has its pleasures and has its burdens it does i mean the, the the culture will tell you of course that you know i hope i'm not jinxing either of us by or <laughs> anyone else by saying this um that in the case of men anyway it has to do with the kind of the procreative urge that you know you you're just storming through everything like a you know, like a, an, an animal when you're, when you're young and perhaps when you're older, the, the, the true person is, is coming through and maybe they're just too discriminating or, um, just unwilling to, to cut the guy ropes or, you know, cut the, whatever, you know, just cut the chain. Um, and it can, yeah, I was, 
if you take that too much on board, you know, you just never do anything. Right. Um, right. But perhaps, perhaps there is something to it. I mean, certainly in my personal life, I mean, I can say that, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't want to revisit my youth. Um, I was not, I was not my best self, you know, and I'm just talking about myself, I'm not talking about anybody else. Um, uh, yeah, so like I was saying a minute ago, you know, you, it's hard to separate your feelings about yourself and your feelings about, your, you know, the, yourself as a worker in the culture. Um, but um, to answer your question, I think if I listen to things I've done now, like in the medium term, like, like last year or something, that I think work, I can see why they work in a way that I, you know, I think, well, yeah, I wouldn't have been able to, to cut to the chase like that when I was younger, I would, or I would have cut to the wrong chase. Right. It, it would be something oversimplified and maybe a bit banal rather than perversely. I was able to simplify it and keep the edge. And that, and, and that's, that's the, I think that's what we're all looking for really is to, is to pare it down. Um, but for it to have integrity, you know, well, I don't mean personal integrity. I mean, the object, the, the, the thing is entire to itself and, it, and is able to draw the, 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 the person exposed to it in, you know. Um, that's the holy grail anyway, isn't it? <laughs> I think it is. And I think that there is something about being young where you look at your work and you go, it's fueled by a kind of libidinous virility, right? But it, but it, didn't, it didn't necessarily make you the best editor, perhaps, right? Yeah. So because that creative rush, I do, I agree with you. I equate it to the rush of like sexual energy. You know, um, and, yeah. I think, and I think that that is a, a blessing and a curse in, in many ways where you lose that discriminating thing. And as you get older, you, I think you're more, um, you're more of a craftsman, I think. Um, I mean, your stuff has always been, been beautifully crafted. But for me personally, I, I think I'm a, more, a better craftsman now. My stuff has a better shape than it did when it was like, I love the girl. The girl doesn't love me. But I think the girl kind of loves me. I don't love her as much. And then like a thousand pages follow, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's how it was. That was the formula. And now it's sort of like, it's just, that's just not the way it is. And um, I think my instincts have sharpened because of it. I mean, that's my take. I don't know if it's true. Well, I, th I think that's where we're all trying to get anyway, you know, I mean, I mean, it's, it's a bit like the sting thing, isn't it? I mean, you've, You've got to got to tell yourself a good story. So you know, and, and I'm not, I'm not saying that in any kind of um, derogatory way. I I, I think um, uh, there's nothing wrong with. Uh, I mean, speaking for myself, it it it's hard to hold on to an aspiration, and I think that's that's a good one to hold on to. because uh, circumstance can just drum, drum them out of you. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I will have days where I think, yeah, I've got a certain amount of craft, but I mean, you know, I'm a crap craftsman. And, 
um, I have this kind of Tin Pan Alley outlook on song structure. This is, it was, it's really kind of funny to observe this kind of, um, uh, I, it's just a, a difference between me and, and, and Sean O'Hagan. I mean, we, we, we're, we're, we're great friends and we, we, we respect what each other do. But as I'm the kind of, the one who wants to do sort of dissonant stuff and like fiddle on the verges of what, you know, makes sense as a, as the, the musical content of a song. Um, I have a very tin pan alley kind of like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight, choruses out or whatever, like outlook on it, where Sean has a much better grasp of musical, of just harmony. And I don't mean like stacking up vocal harmonies, although he's great at that and strings and everything, but just harmony, the way that <laughs> the thing is composed. But he'd, he'd rather he'd rather be dead seven times than um, than write a, a, a Tin Pan Alley verse, chorus, verse, chorus. He just won't go there. Yeah. You know, um, and uh, that's always been his, his aspiration was to break free of that stuff, you know. Whereas for me, it's been like the kind of, like even in the Fatim Mansions days where, you know, we want to do noise, we want to do noise. Um, uh, you'd be in a rehearsal and you'd be just be doing noise and like nobody knows where they're going. Uh, so, okay, right, well, okay, we better have a verse and a chorus. <laughs> <laughs> That'll save it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, well, you know, some of the time it did. So there it is. But it's how the brain is wired, right? I mean, like, you think verse, chorus, verse, Sean's wired in a totally different way. Um, and that's actually kind of cool that, that you can sort of, um, you get those sort of, you see what he's doing, and I'm sure he sees what you're doing. And, you know. Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I, but whereas I couldn't do what he does, technically, um, he he could do what I do in a flash, but he just doesn't want to do it. You know? Just want to do it, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, some people that kind of thing just comes easy to them, right? And and so it's almost like it's yeah. I know, I know. There's some people who can do anything. Um, it makes me happy that you that you guys are pals and that you've maintained friendships over these in this business because it's such a dark business sometimes. But um, you, know, you mentioned Tweety. I mean, Tweety and Ferrar. Those guys are not, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's really, oh. it's, a, it's a great shame, I think, too. Um, although maybe, you know, at least artistically, but um, you've maintained friendships over the 30, 35 years in this business. And I think that's, I think that's notable to, to point out. It's not easy to do sometimes. No, no, because it, and it, the, 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 the pain that it can cause is so much more acute because, um, in music, we are very much dependent on relationships with people. Uh, and I mean, it, it can be a, an isolating business, you know, being right. either being stuck, stuck in your, in your space, trying to get work done for long periods or being away for long periods or whatever. I mean, if, if, if you can't encounter people along the way, with whom you have meaningful relationships. Um, it's very, very rough. I know, because I've been there. I've been times when I, when I isolated myself a lot 
because I either thought I didn't have relationships with people anymore or things were just strained. Um, and I, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, very tough place to be and really unhelpful. And the, the last few years have been great for me in, in, in that respect, you know, in, just in the course of 2019, first we had the, the, the last couple of Micro Disney shows, which was like just, you know, just good vibes and, and new relationships too, because we had a few people playing with us who hadn't been there the first time around and, um, but the same core of four. Um, and then getting together with the Grand Necropolitan people to do the stuff in Ireland that was great. And, um, so, you know, I, I um, in between, I did this um, Gustav Mahler uh, jazz quartet with strings reimagining thing in Dublin, which was unbelievably hard work, but uh, introduced me to a whole bunch of, well, the one very old, um, friend from back in Cork, um, uh, who was, who was a string arranger, cellist. Um, and, uh, yeah, if, if you don't have those relationships, I mean, some people are just, are just naturally hermetic and, and it totally suits them, you know? Yeah. Um, or, or, or some people have, you know, have, have, have had children, for example. And so they're, their family life is is a, a huge part of their lives. I haven't had kids, um, so yeah. Um, I th I th I th for me, the the all my dearest friends are people who, in one way or another, even if they're not musicians, I've met them through music. You know, um, it's been a real blessing in my life. Um, it's made it extremely difficult at times, but I, th I think I was just somebody who would have had difficulty anyway, you know, <laughs> it's just a thing. <laughs> I always think about that, what Kurt Vonnegut wrote in, in Man Without a Country in one of his last books. And he, he said, I look around at my life and I think there's not enough people, you know, and I, and I think about that a lot because I'm like you, I don't have kids either. And I, and sometimes I worry about that because I worry like, are there enough people around? Um, and the fact that you have great friends in music, the fact that you can, you know, you, you can call Sean or Luke or your, or any other pals is, I mean, I would, and I do the same thing with my friends where I tap that a lot where I'm, I'm, I call them almost every day and just sort of check in because I feel like it, I feel like, I feel like I need that um, creatively, emotionally, um, on every level. I think your friends are, are incredibly sustaining. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's probably something of a cliche for me to say this, but at this time it's been particularly acute and I, I, I have found it, it, it has got harder to just pick up the device, you know, um, yeah. but, but, but you have to do it at least a few times a week anyway. Um, because otherwise, <laughs> otherwise it's different. Yeah. yeah. And, and also, I think sometimes we, we tend towards that, for me, being a lone wolf comes kind of naturally to me. And that worries me sometimes, too, where I think, like, I'm too good at this. 
Like, that's not a good, yeah, thing yeah. That, you know, that's not really where you want to put on your resume. I'm really good at being alone for long stretches of time, you know. Um, <laughs> I just don't think that's great. Um, and I do find that when I when I have people in my life and I'm talking to them and bouncing ideas off of them, I'm I'm a better version of myself when I do that. You know? Yeah, I, I I do find that also. Sometimes just chatting about something someone has experienced just gives it life in a way that, I mean, it certainly wouldn't have if you were just reading about that prosaic social phenomenon or event or whatever it happens to be. But sometimes it gives it something that it wouldn't have had even if you'd experienced it yourself. Right. You know, hearing their perspective on it just gives it, gives you new eyes. And yeah, I guess that's, that's why as a species we've remained here for as long as we have so far. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think you're probably right. And I think, um, I think that the, I mean, finishing up, I, when I turned 50, I, my perspective on the past totally changed where I was almost became allergic to it because I was so scared of being Miss Havisham, you know, in, in a tale of two, yeah, in, yeah. Expectation, in, in great expectations where I thought, I don't want to be the guy who runs a museum of myself. Like here's a shirt I wore when the girl did or whatever. Like, I don't want to be that. So I thought, you know, there's something about the past that I want to sort of break away from and not, because you can't live there. You, you have to keep, and this show really is all about like what's happening now, like how, what, what challenges, what triumphs are happening now and tomorrow. Um, because the past is like a known world, right? We, we, we know it, we've, we've lived it. Well, we right. think we know it. We think we know it. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> every memory is a memory of a memory, right? Like you, your memory is already out of the yeah, yeah. Like he, he, even the the, the 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 first instant memory was 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 fabricated by your by your nervous system, you know. Yeah, that's right. Way. I, I, are you familiar with uh, Joe Gould? No. That, that that guy in New York, he was a tramp. Uh, like when they had proper, you know, old school tramps, he 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 frequented the kind of artsy world of of Greenwich Village. He came from money originally, and uh, I'll I'll keep it reasonably brief. Um, There's a book called Joe Gold's Secret that describes the the, the whole thing, but he claimed that he had written the the oral history of, I forget whether it was America or his life or just New York City. Something, it didn't matter anyway, because it never came to anything, but he would persuade people to give him lodging and buy him food and generally kind of, uh, he wasn't a particularly agreeable person and he, he would cadge everything on the basis of he needed a place to work on this. And now, I mean, he's been dead for 50 years or something and still nobody knows whether there was such a work. If, it's the pendulum swings for a few years. Everyone goes, no, no, no. It, it was all complete, complete fantasy. And then someone finds a few more pages and go, hang on a minute. You know, this, 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 this actually happened. So, I mean, I've, I've written songs about Joe Gould. I mean, I, I can, you know, based on him, um, I, I, I heavily, heavily identify, but I think you're right. I mean, 
you have to try to distinguish yourself from it because it's a cold place to be. Yeah. <laughs> it is. You know, by your effort, you have to. <laughs> um, it's a cold place to be. It could be a miraculous place to be, or it could be hell, you know. Who wants to find out? <laughs> what, what is it about Joe Gould that you identify with the, so much? That maybe, uh, maybe everything I've always said about myself is bullshit. Yeah. You know. Uh, and, you know, especially, you know, especially with the, the Universal Records fire and, uh, the, you know, the, the legalized Pirate Bay that is Spotify and all the other kind of libertarian um, encroachments on what, what we thought as musicians we, we did. Um, uh, the, with that wind changing, if one is remembered at all in the future, um, perhaps it, it will be as Joe Gould, a deluded, a deluded creature, you know. So um, <laughs> that's the that that that's the that's how I identify anyway. Yeah, I've been actually the last few weeks I've been thinking I've been reading a book about it and it sort of indicates that it's this book called You Are Not So Smart. And it basically tells you that every narrative that you've created about yourself is bullshit. Like none of, it, none of it's real. And you've told yourself this, this story about yourself so many times that it has actually replaced any resemblance to the truth. Um, and I've even caught myself sometimes telling stories about myself. Like if I go on a date, I'll, I find myself repeating stories I've told and I've, I, mean, I can hear, I can feel the embroidery coming in and it replaces the old one. And then the next time I tell that story, it becomes more fantastical. And I think like, sometimes I go, who am I? <laughs> no idea who I am, <laughs> you know? It's, it's maddening. I guess we're all kind of Lee Mavers in some weird way. <laughs> I, think, I think we are. And I certainly caught myself in it, yeah. Somewhere between Mavers and Gould is where yeah. we... Yeah, the, the Mavers-Gould project. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, listen, I think I've started your day off on a very weird note, but I, I certainly agree. Oh, it's been good. It's been fun. It's been fun. I, I've admired your work for years, and I've, I've always wanted to chat with you, and I'm, I'm grateful that we had an opportunity to do that. Me too, Alex. I, I've had a good time. 